Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Republican leaders in Texas shamefully avoiding responsibility and shifting blame for the massacre of 19 elementary school children and two teachers in their state in the 213th mass shooting incident in the U.S. so far this year. In Texas, Governor Abbott, whose administration has prioritized protecting the lives of fetuses over living children, has been quick to ban books that offend his political sensibilities while doing everything possible to make guns more available and ownership unconstrained. Now he is calling for action on mental health, but in 2015 he tweeted, quote, I'm embarrassed in caps. Texas number two in nation for new gun purchases behind California. Let's pick up the pace, Texans. Joining us is James Moore, an Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has travelled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Bend Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World, and we will discuss his op-ed at CNN, What People Don't Get About Guns and the Constitution. Then we'll look into our gun culture and its historical roots and speak with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who grew up in rural Oklahoma, the daughter of a tenant farmer and a part Indian mother, active in the international indigenous movement for more than four decades. She taught in the newly established Native American Studies program at California State University, Haywood, where she also helped found the Department of Ethics and Women's Studies. She's the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and her latest book is Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. Then finally we'll assess how much the alarm being expressed by the US and Australia over the diplomatic tour of Pacific Island nations underway by the Chinese foreign minister is justified as China offers greater security, policing and cybersecurity cooperation along with economic development. Joining us is Sarang Shador, Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose area of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy, and energy and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia and the Pacific. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is James Moore, who's an Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World. And he has an op-ed at CNN, What People Don't Get About Guns and the Constitution. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Moore. Hi, Ian. It's always good to talk to you. Well, thanks, Jim. And what did you make of uh, Beto O'Rourke's attempt to stop the self-serving nonsense that the Texas leadership with Governor Abbott is Lieutenant Governor Ted Cruz, etc., standing there in Uvalde, including, the, by the way, the head of the public safety. I mean, we're now we're learning how badly the police handled it, and, of course, none of that came up. But in general, at least Beto O'Rourke challenged him because what Abbott kept talking about is it's all about mental health, and Beto O'Rourke said, yeah, but you guys turned down, you know, billions of dollars from for Medicare, uh, which could have gone to health and and mental health. So uh, is that resonating or the fact that Abbott was able to sort of indignantly say this is not the right time to talk politics? Well, politics are directly related to this massacre as far as I can see. Well, I think it's rather precious that the governor of Texas and Ted Cruz and Dan Patrick, our lieutenant governor, were sitting at that dais and they accused him 
of playing politics with the issue when in fact they were on their way to Houston to get big donation checks from the NRA right after this happened because the NRA knows what's going to happen now is political pressure is going to be built up to make something happen on, in terms of gun reform. I will say that I think, and this is just a personal standpoint, that what Beto did was manifest the frustration that many, many people feel over this thing. How it plays out politically for him, I couldn't speculate. I don't know. I think it it clearly has motivated people to give him money. He's doing very well on social media this morning. And most of the criticism is coming from people like Ted Cruz and folks on the far right. I think that somebody has to stand up to a guy like Greg Abbott. And especially when he has these events, these are not news conferences. They put up, they put up a table and a microphone and they, they put something between them and the reporters and they stand there or sit there and they make these pronouncements and then they're done. They don't take questions. They leave and nobody in the public knows what the hell's going on other than the fact that we're not going to have any gun control. And why is it the media always talks about gun control every time one of these horrendous massacres happens? Well, everybody knows the reason we talk about gun control. One more point I want to add. You mentioned the mental health stuff in Texas. We are number 49 in Texas on mental health funding. And in the last legislative session, Greg Abbott vetoed a bill. I believe it was $1.5 million to improve some mental health services in the state. And the fact that we refuse to expand Medicaid in Texas has a huge impact on access to medical health facilities and professionals. So it's pretty easy to blame it and use mental health as a fig leaf, but that's not the problem. The problem is that anybody with mental health can get access to a gun, which is exactly what happened in Uvalde. And Governor Abbott has been a champion, of course, for the proliferation of guns uh, for open carry. And as you point out in your article at CNN, James Moore, what people don't get about guns in the Constitution is that he tweeted out Abbott uh, in 2015, I'm embarrassed in caps. Texas is number two in nation for new gun purchases behind California. Let's pick up the pace, Texans. So there he is encouraging people to buy more guns. Yeah, he thinks that guns are the answer. And, and the truth is, if you look closely, Ian, at what happened in Uvalde, there were people there with guns. There were police there with guns. And they did not stop this from happening, even after they chased this guy and he got into a wreck and then he ran to the, the school and went inside. They didn't stop him. And then while he was inside for at least 40 minutes committing his slaughter, these cops outside with guns did not go in and confront him. The, the, this tragedy didn't end until I think a Border Patrol agent came along and killed the shooter. But. All of those guns were present. Remember, Uvalde, as a school district, has five armed police officers on campus at all times. And that did not prevent this. And now, instead of trying to do something about the cause of the issue, that you get people like Ted Cruz talking about hardening schools, putting in more locks. Our lieutenant governor talks about schools have too many doors. We have to reduce the doors. As if we're going to put our kids inside of prisons so that they can go to school. And as if the number of doors is the issue that allowed this to happen. Cruz could only talk about the back door of the school being unlocked, which was an obscenity to me that he blames it on the school and he blames it on the maintenance and the operation of the facility and not on the fact that a crazy 18 year old was able to go out and buy AR 15s and ammo rounds and then do whatever he wanted to do and destroy all of these lives. It is, it is to me, and it's incomprehensible. It's obscene. We ought to be embarrassed. We ought to be ashamed, and not by the fact that California is purchasing more guns, but by the fact that we allow it in Texas and everywhere else in this country, a ready access that is having a fundamental effect on destroying our country. Well, don't expect shame from uh, Ted Cruz, Jim, I'm afraid. That man is shameless. But 
doesn't this whole idea that they had all those campus police outside while this kid was inside slaughtering students and they didn't do anything and the parents and bystanders were yelling at the police saying do something do something and they didn't and eventually uh, the border patrol came in and shot the killer but doesn't this explode the mantra of the NRA that the best way to deal with a bad guy with a gun is with a good guy with a gun well the good guys had the guns but it didn't stop the bad guy I think that has always been fatuous nonsense. It has always been the idea that you can give a janitor or a teacher a gun and suggest that when someone comes in with an automatic weapon that the teacher is going to be able to pull a pistol out and kill that person and prevent the tragedy from happening. It just doesn't work that way. Ian. And in everything that everybody says is that when you add another gun into the mix, you only increase the tragedy. And the statistics show that over and over and over. But the NRA is very good at marketing. And when you write big checks to people like Ted Cruz and John Cornyn, who are the two of the biggest recipients of the NRA funding, and they're both Texas senators, when you turn them into mouthpieces and people who are willing to prostrate themselves in front of the gun lobby and deflect for the gun lobby and pretend that this is not a social issue, that this is just, uh, you know, this is, this is something else, then, then it's just going to keep happening. And I don't, I, I don't know what it's going to take. And, and I, one other thing I would say, and, and I've been trying to communicate this to people and I don't know if this is true. I, I, I could be wrong and I frequently am Ian, but this incident, and I've, been through a lot of these like all journalists have but this incident has a feeling to me of something different of of a moment that is causing people to reflect and be profoundly shocked and maybe there becomes a political will i'm not sure this one is going to go away and my hope is that it happens in a way that it has an effect on our gubernatorial election and combined with Roe v. Wade, it could turn the country in another direction. But who knows? But this something has to happen after this. If it doesn't, we are, in my view, we are a hopeless nation. And again, I'm speaking with James Moore, who's an Emmy Award winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Bend Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World. And he has an op-ed at CNN, What People Don't Get About Guns and the Constitution. Well, it is, um, what is it, the 213th mass shooting in America so far this year. So this is clearly an American problem. And in fact, Ted Cruz was on British television, was asked by uh, the interviewer, why is it that only in America you have these mass shootings? And Ted Cruz stormed off the set. But let's talk about your article in terms of what people don't get about guns and the Constitution. Obviously, the Heller decision was a catastrophe that Scalia somehow got the Supreme Court to turn, put the cart before the horse, where the Second Amendment says... A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, a citizen's right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, the predicate, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, that's gone out the window. We are neither secure or free. And surely the, the gun safety people ought to make their campaign around that, around the Second Amendment. They shouldn't allow the Second Amendment to be expropriated by these gun nuts, they should basically use it as a as a weapon because we are not secure and we are not free. You cannot go to school without being afraid of being shot. You can't go to a mall without being afraid of being shot. You can't go to a church without being afraid of being shot. This is insane. I don't disagree, and I think the whole idea of originalists trying to make the argument that this was about arming the public they first ignore the predicate, as you suggest, of a well-regulated militia. And, they, and then they also make the argument that the only way to regulate it is to arm the public, which is 
again, this is utter nonsense. And one of the things that is avoided on all of this talk about the Second Amendment and and the Constitution is that uh, I think it's very important to remember that the Constitution is also uses a language to guarantee domestic tranquility. We certainly don't have any of that because of the Second Amendment. But the but further, uh, as I suggested in that piece, the Constitution, what makes it a, a viable document all these years after it was originally drafted is that it's a living document. It could be amended. And as I suggested, I I think it's it's really abhorrent to me that we can't come up with language that that creates a network of computers that talk to each other, that creates regulations that protect the public at, at the same time while protecting their rights. Well, there's there's no there's no reason for anyone to own an AR-15. I know people enjoy them. I know I have friends who have them and take them out to the range and shoot them and get a kick out of them. But the public doesn't need an AR-15. It just doesn't make sense to me. And I'm sure there are people in your audience hearing me say that who think I'm crazy, but we can still have a right to keep and bear arms without having, having these weapons of mass slaughter get into the hands of anybody who wants them. And in Texas, you know, you can't drink till you're 21, but if you're 18, you can go out and buy an AR-15 and go kill a school full of kids. Well, there have, of course, been incidents uh, with the AR-15 being used in mass, mass shootings, and this is just the latest of many. The Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Florida in February of 2018, in October the 1st of 2017, the, the Las Vegas slaughter, where 58 people were killed by these AR-15 assault rifles. And yep. then in 2017, in, in Sutherland, Texas, in a church, again, an, another AR-15 or assault rifle. And, of course, then you have uh, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, the San Bernardino, California shooting killed 14 people in 2015. And in 2012, of course, Sandy Hook, which has the all-time record taking 27 lives of these very, very young children whose parents, by the way, had to identify them. And people don't know what these high-caliber rounds do coming out of these assault rifles. They just blow the flesh apart. I mean, imagine what it's like losing your child and then having to identify a kid who's just nothing but sort of destroyed flesh and bone and blood. I mean, you know, the anti-abortion people show fetuses. I think that the gun safety people ought to start showing pictures of what these guns do to the human body. Yeah, it would be a horrible thing to do, but of course it would have an impact. We also have a tendency to sanitize our wars of choice in foreign lands as well. We don't show the devastation there. We we show the heroic soldier pointing the gun down range, but we don't show the adult or the child getting obliterated by the weapon that was fired. And I think... One of the most devastating juxtapositions that I read or witnessed yesterday was the idea that the governor of Texas and Ted Cruz and the lieutenant governor of Texas were in Houston starting their NRA conversations and meetings and receptions and obviously picking up their donor checks from the NRA at the same time that parents had still not been given any confirmation on the DNA tests of their kids. There were parents at that reunification center well into the night wondering if their child was one of the dead and they got the DNA match and they found out. And that didn't stop. It didn't even make them hesitate to go to Houston and hold the NRA convention, which begins today. And the only Texan who has pulled back from it that I am aware of is Senator John Cornyn, who all, all, of, all of a sudden discovered that he had something important going on in Washington, D.C., and he couldn't be there, even though he was booked. He was already booked to appear. He decided not to show up. But, but you're right. Until we stop sanitizing the visuals associated with these tragedies, they're going to keep happening. And until we stop finding excuses for the gun control matter, they're going to keep happening. So what are then, going back to Beto O'Rourke, who's running against 
Governor Abbott for governor of Texas. Is there a chance? I mean, you can't do anything with these characters like Abbott and the right-wing talk show host who's the lieutenant governor. And, of course, Ted Cruz, he's not up until 2024, I think. And then Paxton, the <laughs> he's been under indictment forever, and he's the attorney general. He's a disgrace, too. He got a donor to pay off a mistress or something. I mean, these people who wear their Christianity on their sleeve and encourage people to arm, get anything <laughs> in the case of Abbott, complained that Texas was behind California and purchasing guns, and Texas had to step up and buy more guns. I mean, is, is there a chance of of a political change in Texas to just sweep these people away? Because I don't think you can... You're never going to change their minds. They don't care about the people. They only care about their, taking care of their donors. It's a really disgraceful situation. So what are the chances of political change in Texas? Well, as a lifelong Texan, I'm embarrassed as hell. And uh, I will tell you that uh, I originally did not believe that Beto had a significant chance. But the thing for people to bear in mind about Beto is that in his race against Ted Cruz, he was the first Democrat in Texas history, including Ann Richards and others, to carry every urban county, including Tarrant County in Fort Worth, which had never before voted Democrat. But he lost the rural areas. But what we're seeing now, Ian, I think is a confluence of issues that has manifested in a way that I think it gives him a chance. You have this gun control issue, you have abortion, and now this the other matters that are giving him some lift in the rural areas are Medicaid, and, and he's out there talking about that. In the past 10 years, we've had excuse me, 10 hot, or I'm sorry, 26 hospitals in the past 10 years that have closed down because they don't have the money to stay open because we have refused to accept Medicaid dollars. And the state only has to put in 10% of the federal money, of the money to match the feds. So that's an issue. And he's, you know, he, he also vetoed a major bill uh, that would have provided broadband to rural areas. And Beto's out there now appealing to the rural areas, he's still going very strong in in the urban areas. But I do believe that this sort of coming together of these issues, and you know as well as I do that when there's great political change, it tends to it tends to ride on a wave of cultural and social dynamics that somebody is smart enough to step out in front of and almost surf on it. And that's what that's what made LBJ a historic president. And I think it I think there's a chance that Beto could pull this off. Well, James Moore, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Ian. Always good to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with James Moore, who's an Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He is the founder of Big Bend Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World. And he has an op-ed at CNN, What People Don't Get About Guns and the Constitution. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into our gun culture and its historical roots. Kids with guns, kids with guns, taken over by one belong, they mesmerize skeletons, kids with guns, kids with guns. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who grew up in rural Oklahoma, the daughter of a tenant farmer and a part Indian mother, active in the international indigenous movement for more than four decades. She taught in the newly established Native American Studies program at California State University, Haywood, where she also helped found the Department of Ethnic Studies and Women's Studies. She's the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and her latest book is Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, and 
I think that one of the missing elements in, in this agonizing and repetitive debate over gun control, now that we've witnessed the 213th mass shooting this year in this country, just, just process that for a second, the 213th mass shooting so far, and we know that there are more guns in this country than there are people. But it seems to me that obviously the Texas Republican leaders are trying to deflect the debate by suggesting it's all about mental health, not about guns. But what about gun culture and the work that you've done in terms of Native American studies? Is it in our sort of DNA going back to the settlers, colonial days of this founding of this country, the genocide of the indigenous people? the superior technology of the six-gun and the repeating rifle over the bows and arrows of the Native Americans. is Where does our gun culture begin? Well, it begins with colonialism. <laughs> you know, that's the setting in which it takes a lot of killing to take people's lands, and especially across a whole continent. It took a hundred years after the U.S. was independent uh, to get to the Pacific, and they had to fight their way every inch of the way to get there. So that's you know that's a, a that's in the DNA of every U.S. person that's born, and it, it's such it's the ideology or the the content of patriotism that immigrants have to embrace and try to make themselves into settlers, although the ones of color are rarely completely accepted as, as such, as real, real Americans. So in terms of the popular culture, though, it seems if you go back from the beginning of Hollywood, it was always the six-gun and the repeating Winchester rifle that saved the day against hordes of, of Native Americans. And there was a movie, How the West Was Won. Won. <laughs> Genocide is, is hardly something to celebrate. So then you go to, to the present day, Roxanne, where young kids, and, and I'm talking about all American kids, whether they're white, brown, black, or whatever, they spend an awful lot of time on video games, which are largely about shooting people or zombies or whatever. But it's this, it's, again, it's like you're looking down the barrel of a gun and you're blowing away people and they even have it very graphically where the bodies explode and blood and right. guts go everywhere. So surely this has an impact on our culture, particularly on impressionable young people. Well, I think it actually demonstrates the uh, exceptionalism of the United States in this regard of gun uh, mass shootings and gun violence and proliferation of guns. Uh, is that those videos are all over the world and you don't have a proliferation of guns, an imitation. But because it's U.S. kids looking at it and they have this valiant history of killing, it folds in as, you know, uh, in a way that it doesn't when it's, so I think it's overplayed. That's sort of the right wing mantra, mental illness and video games, um, blame Hollywood. And I think that's, uh, you have to look at that, that th those are all over the world. You know, everyone has access to them. In fact, many of them are made in other countries. And, uh, you know, you just don't see the same effect. Uh, it's more of a purging, you know, I mean, uh, a way of uh, violence. You know, kids like, I know I used to like those comic books that were just hideous, you know, like, um cooking a, a, a person in in an oven, you know, stuffed like a pig. I remember going like that. And, I, I you know, I thought they were great because um, I think kids are like that. And and I, I, so I don't think video games are what it is. I think it is. I think what it is is the proliferation of guns uh, to have, you know, more than one gun per person. But you have you have to break it down, too, because. Only a third of the U.S. population, adult population, owns any gun at all. 70% own, well, 35% do not own a gun. 
although many bought guns during the pandemic out of out of fear and you know gun dealers were making huge amounts of money people who had never had a gun before or never and certainly didn't have any training to use it so we saw a great uptick in general gun violence but still it's about you know 35 percent uh that own guns so the average gun owner owns nine guns and there is no way you, that means that many, as you know, averages go own 40 or 50 because many people own just one gun and usually a shotgun, you know, for self-defense or a 22 rifle for hunting um, birds or rabbits or whatever. So, and that's mostly in rural areas, um, wouldn't be the best, they could kill someone, but you'd have to work at it pretty carefully <laughs> to kill someone and you wouldn't have the intention to or you would have a bigger gun so i think that that's just not like anything else in the world and it's tied up with capitalism uh, the first corporation established even before during the 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 u.s war of independence under the Continental Congress, they established the first corporation. What was it? An arms factory in Springfield, Massachusetts. And that, you know, it's always been the, the biggest export of weapons uh, in the world. And invention of weapons, of course, the Winchester is the most famous one, but there's the Remington, um, the Colt, you know, the, and this is, before the Civil War. And then, of course, with the Civil War, all kinds of new arms manufacturing. But mainly, what we're seeing, I think, is the result of the settler colonialism and the mythology around, uh, you, you mentioned the, the movies. I think the movies had, had a huge effect on the grandeur, you know, of. Um, uh, of uh, the cowboy, the cowboy image, the John John Wayne, um, and the um, the killing of degrading of native people. I mean, even the portrayal of Indian people, because they all have feathers. They all look like Plains Indians. And of course, all of this started on the East Coast, where people have very different cultures. They're farmers, you know, and they're taking their land and uh, appropriating their crops and their storages of food and burning their villages, mostly except for the Northern Plains. Native people live in, live in villages all over the country, had very uh, governmental institutions and so forth. Um, so it was um, farmers are, I think, one of the one of the vulnerable things about um, the East Coast and the Southeast uh, conquest is that 90% of the people were, were farmers, intensive farmers. And it was a land that was wanted and land for slave labor, labor and uh, commercial agriculture, agribusiness, not raising food, but rather cotton and fibers and um, uh, the, the, to sell on the market. So from the very beginning, that land was not made for just, you know, producing food, but it was taken. And I think, you know, the, in the first stages of those assaults, Native people were not armed. The mythology is that Native people were running around, you know, with bows and arrows and hunting um, Native people, mostly, mostly when they um, took animals to eat, uh, they did so by trapping. <laughs> they didn't use guns, they used trapping. And so that, that whole mythology around the hunter, you know, and Daniel Boone and all being a replacement of the Native people and the Native culture, and what I've come to call self-indigenizing, uh, which settler colonialism does, uh, people will tell you, I'm a, an original American. I come from that Scots-Irish background, uh, the main culprits, 
this uh, settling and you know populated Appalachia that moved around the country. Um, and I know, you know, I had the, the immigrants around us, the German and Czech and Polish immigrants, um, they, they were farmers too, you know, they were there, they had land, very successful, they were more or less white, uh, but we always thought of them as, um, as immigrants, you know, even after they'd be there, you know, generations, they were still immigrants. And we were the original people. So that, um, that I think you had that mentality of, of settlerism that um, is, it, and you see it now with white nationalism. These are people mostly defend, uh, descended from original settlers or descended from immigrants who pretend to be <laughs> original settlers. Um, I mean, our wannabes, uh, but it's a whole idea of, of um, uh, that white stock that Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, so emphasized, you know, the Anglo-Saxon Nordic. Um, he, after he wrote hundreds of books, and he finally conceded that maybe the Celts not the Irish, but the Scots, uh, could be included because he found out he might be part Scottish. So <laughs> that, you know, that, uh, that and the eugenics movement. Um, so it's tied up together and, and Christianity itself, you know, from the very beginning is white nationalism because it was the vehicle for colonization of the whole non-European world. So, it, you know, what's, what, developed in the United States this culture of violence that that was from the very beginning it and you know then to get to the Constitution itself uh, putting uh, private militias into the Bill of Rights they had already put it in the Constitution of uh, the state militias liberals want to say that this you know this Bill of, of Individual Rights that the Second Amendment was made for state militias. But that is absolutely absurd because the Constitution already had Article 8 in great detail of what they called state militias that later became the National Guard. And it was precisely to empower settlers to conquer Indian land by organizing, well-regulating themselves, but self-regulating themselves. It doesn't mean it came from government. And, and that's what, you know, the Second Amendment, they cling to the Second Amendment. I've heard, you know, I even have some relatives who I hear, I've heard them say, you know, the black people and Indians and all the immigrants and all, They've taken over the United States, and all we have left is the Second Amendment. So they really cling to that as their, and now that we have originalism in power in the Supreme Court, and much of Congress, and probably again, Donald Trump, uh, this is, you know, this is, um, uh, this is, this is then the um, empowerment, you know, the, this is, what Trumpism was able to do. I mean, it built up over a long, long time. Uh, but he became a figure who, at the very top, uh, very consciously empowered that, what I call about 25% of the population. So, that, so, so Roxanne, just to, to get back to the, the tragedy down in, in Texas and this 18-year-old trouble boy, who on his 18th birthday was able to buy two assault rifles, and then he went out and killed 19 kids in an elementary school and two of their teachers. And again, trying to focus in on, on the gun culture, it does seem that, that there's an indoctrination in our culture that suggests that guns are the things that settle problems. In other words, I mean, I think a way to neutralize this culture would be to recognize it, that if you pull a gun or a knife, you're a coward. I mean, I don't understand why all these characters 
dressed in camo and Kevlar, <laughs> covered foot to toe, holding assault rifles. What are they afraid of? What is it about our culture, our life that requires you to be so heavily armed? And again, it seems to me that is there a way to neutralize this culture by suggesting that people who brandish guns and knives are cowards? What, what are you afraid of? Are the Martians going to come down and conquer the country? What's going on? Well, they are fascists. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's a, a, a apt description. But they're white nationalists. And they intend to have a minority government. And we have a Supreme Court now that agrees with them. And these are mostly Christian nationalists. I'm doing a book right now, a book of essays on Christian nationalism. Because it is white nationalism. It's not all Christians. And, right, but, this, know, but the me. shooter... But, but Roxanne, the shooter down in Texas was a Hispanic kid. Yes, he's Hispanic. We've had uh, black uh, uh, shooters. We've had uh, uh, that uh, shooter from uh, Iraq, I think, at the Afghanistan, Air- yeah, yeah. No, uh, Travis Air-, Air Force Base. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. He-, he was from Saudi um, Arabia, yeah. And then, and then oh, the- he was Saudi Arabia, yeah. yeah. And then the guy so, in at the Pulse nightclub was Afghan, yeah. Right. So these mass shootings, I think, or I have a whole a whole specific chapter on mass shootings in, in my book, Loaded, uh, uh, the book on the Second Amendment. Uh, I think it's, a, um, it's related, but it actually can be democratized. You know, anyone can go buy these guns. You know, it's no longer, it used to be that blacks were not uh, allowed, slaves were not allowed to carry guns. It was actually a of Virginia to uh, sell a gun to an Indian. It was death. It was a death sentence to do that. So there are lots of restrictions like that on guns, but only to empower, you know, the white gun owner. And that um, these mass shootings are a product of the proliferation of guns, period. They're simply available. I hear people saying, uh, people who never had a gun, or who are liberals even, saying, I didn't really understand that I had this right. I'm not using it. You know, it's as if there's this gift you're not using because, you know, you, you love freedom of speech and, you know, freedom, all these other freedoms. And you say, I'm not using that one. So I, I think I'll get a gun because I can. And for these kids, I think we have to look at the last, you know, this 10-day period when we saw the shooting in Buffalo, which was a very self-conscious white nationalist shooting. It's one of three we've had in the United States, the one in El Paso uh, and the one in, um, well, there was one in El Centro, California, I think there's one, oh, the one in uh, South Carolina of the Mother Emanuel. So we've had four openly white nationalist ones. Uh, the rest of them have no real motive that can be identified. I, tr- I went in depth with many of them in that chapter, trying to get to what is the strand that connects them all. And the only thing that connects them is the ease of getting a gun. You get angry at something, you go out and get a gun, or you have a gun in the house and you have a, a, a fight and Usually men, you know, beat up on women, bruise them up, but usually doesn't kill them. But when they pick up the gun and shoot them in the head, it kills, you know. And so these domestic um, killings that happen constantly that hardly even get publicity because they're not out in public. In fact, the FBI doesn't count them as mass killings. And there are often dozens of relatives involved that are killed. So this is, you know, the, the, the gun is, is just the fact it's there. It's so easy to get. So in this 10-day period, we had two kids. Maybe the second one, this one in uh, Uvalde, was a copycat because we had a lot of news that this kid in Buffalo, the day after he turned 18, he went and bought uh, two assault rifles from a, a legal gun dealer in his hometown. And then 10 days later, 
a kid, the day after his birthday, 18th birthday, goes and buys two assault rifles from a legal gun dealer. Now, that shouldn't be, first of all, 18-year-olds shouldn't have any gun, much <laughs> and, and no one should be having these semi-automatic guns. And there's no, I mean, I think uh, Governor Abbott should be put on trial, you know, for murder, mass murder, because he pushed through the erasure of any kind of gun law. You can walk around with an unlicensed gun without it being illegal now, and, and that's just in the last two years. Um, and the others are copying it. Other states are copying that, just taking off any, whereas they're closing down abortion, they're opening absolutely no restrictions on these deadly weapons. So anyone can go do it. But I think this kid in Uvalde, you know, it was so much in the news, the shooting, you couldn't really avoid it, even if you're just on the Internet you know, right. or well, face, Facebook. They obviously care more about the fetus than they do about living children. Uh, I, I thank you for joining us, uh, Roxanne. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who grew up in rural Oklahoma, the daughter of a tenant farmer and a part Indian mother, active in the international indigenous movement for more than four decades. She taught in the newly established Native American Studies program at California State University, Haywood, where she also helped found the Department of Ethnic and Women's Studies. And she's the author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States. And her latest book is Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. We can take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of how much the alarm being expressed by the U.S. and Australia over the diplomatic tour of the Pacific Island nations underway by the Chinese foreign minister is justified. Mothers, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Don't let them pick guitars or drive them old trucks. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarang Sidori, who is the Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose areas of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy, and energy and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia and the Pacific. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarang Sidori. Thank you, Ian. So glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the foreign minister of China, Wang Yi, is on a 10-day regional diplomatic tour of the Pacific, culminating with a meeting in Fiji next week. He visited uh, the Solomon Islands on Thursday and will visit Kiribati, Samoa, Fiji, Tonga, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, and East Timor. And apparently they're going to be offering a there's a draft proposal for common development vision and a five-year action plan that will call for greater cooperation in security, policing, and cybersecurity and in economic development in these countries that he's visiting. So we've already had the situation in the Solomons where the prime minister made a sort of secret deal with China, which there was no sharing completely no transparency whatsoever, and it alarmed both the U.S. and Australia, uh, and it may have had some impact in the change of government in Australia. So the new Australian uh, Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, is in Fiji meeting with F the F Fijian leadership ahead of uh, their meeting with the Chinese. So are the allies, Australia and the U.S., trying to play catch-up here? Yeah, so I think we have to take a step back and 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 think of how this region uh, relates to the rest of Asia and where Asia is going. Now, we have had a tectonic shift in Asia in the last 30 years uh, from a country that was essentially a peasant nation. Uh, China has transformed into an industrial power and, as we know, a middle-income country with the population they have, which is four times that of us here in the U.S. That makes their GDP 
not equal to as of now, but getting closer to the United States' GDP. And by the end of this decade, China will overtake, if current trends continue, the U.S. in terms of its dollar GDP. It's already overtaken the U.S. in terms of its purchasing power parity GDP, what is sort of in terms of real ability to buy goods and services. So in many ways, China is a essentially a peer of the U.S. economically, and B, it is actually closer to the South Pacific, uh, or at least equidistant, depending on which country we are talking about, uh, to uh, as the U.S. is. So in any rational scheme of things, we would expect a power that's risen so fast and has grown so rich in such a short time to want to spread its influence. And we are seeing that in the case of China. Uh, it's a natural, the US did that when it grew in, in its uh, path, uh, you know, 100 years back or more. And China's doing the same thing. Now, the question is, is it doing things that threaten the security of the United States? And that is the question that needs to be addressed rather than you know, reacting to every move China makes on every, towards every small nation on uh, uh, you know, tourist or, or investment or other things. Now, the security agreement with the Solomon Islands is about the possibility of China. We don't know, you know we don't have all the details on all the agreements uh, Wangi is going to sign uh, with all the countries, but there is a component that enables China to deploy security services. It hasn't deployed them. There is no sign of any base being built. The U.S. itself has similar agreements with other countries around the world. Uh, not all of them are public in terms of the text of those agreements. So what what we have here is a is a is a natural development in terms of the shifts of power that are occurring. The question we have to ask is which of these shifts are genuinely threatening to the U.S. In which case they should be of concern. And which of them are sort of marginal or in, in some ways, you know, even develop markets in those areas where U.S. businesses could potentially take advantage of if, if those regions grow faster. But isn't there an asymmetry in the way that the Chinese government can bribe? Uh, there are already a lot of uh, apparently pirate fishing going on, pirate logging, and particularly in Papua New Guinea. I mean, the, the Solomon's deal seems like a straightforward bribe of the prime minister, who was who very unpopular, and didn't share it with anybody and caught everybody by surprise. And my understanding is that the U.S. has sort of outsourced that region to Australia in terms of security. And, uh, of course, that has backfired on the previous prime minister. So is this an opportunity for these small nations to play these powers off against each other? Yeah, that's actually right. I think you hit the nail on the head there. These small countries, and it's not just the South Pacific, you're seeing that in the Middle East, for example, in some cases, you're seeing that in in uh, Africa too, to an extent. You're seeing smaller uh, countries, uh, countries that you know we, we used to call the third world, but now called the global south, uh, are seeing what's happening in terms of the rise of China. The US remains a very powerful player, obviously. And they're trying to to uh, leverage this uh, dynamic, this competition, uh, for their own purposes. This is not unusual behavior. Most countries want to grow faster, and if they can get uh, you know, investment and other favors from all major powers uh, by playing their hands strategically, then they will do it. Uh, so it, it's it's a it's a very well well you know well observed uh, strategy going back many decades, but you you did make a point about illegal fishing, and I think that's a real concern because we are seeing uh, Chinese vessels as China grows, you know it's 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 a demand for for fish and other kinds of food, high protein or uh, foods food that they couldn't afford 30 years ago so much has grown dramatically. So you are seeing a lot of Chinese illegal fishing around the world. And in fact, the Quad, which is a grouping of four uh, nations, U.S. partners and allies that recently had a summit in Tokyo, has made that a priority in terms of tracking uh, illegal fishing. A lot of these boats turn off their transponders and are not uh, officially detectable, but they can be. 
through technology, and that's what the Quad is doing. So some of these activities will help if they're done again, not with the aim of containing China, but with the aim of uh, actually containing this overfishing. And, and of course, China is the big, uh, you know, purveyor of it, and, and certainly in the Pacific and other parts as well. But there are also other countries that do it. So uh, the U.S. can certainly help and is doing something in that space. Uh, but it should be again done uh, to combat a common challenge that that threatens food supplies for all of us. And again, I'm speaking with Sarang Shadori, who's Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose areas of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy, and energy and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia and the Pacific. So in terms of Australia dropping the ball, Sarang, my understanding is that a lot of these countries, particularly Kiribati, which is literally going under, the ocean rise is literally, the country will most of it will disappear, that they're really uh, upset with Australia because of Australia's attitude to global warming and climate change, which the previous prime minister was just voted out, was a global warming denier. So along with the Chinese ability to bribe and lack of attention, it kind of colonial arrogance on the part of the Australians, is that a big factor? Because Australia exports massive amounts of coal, which is then burned in China, and it contributes enormously to global warming. Now, that doesn't make the Chinese less culpable than the Australians, but apparently these island nations uh, are very upset, (laughs) quite understandably, about global warming because they're beginning to disappear under the ocean. Absolutely. I think you have raised a really important point, which is especially relevant in the South Pacific. Uh, there is a coalition called Small Island States uh, Coalition in the UN Climate Talks that has made this point over and over again and very strongly. They're very, very worried. Uh, countries like uh, Kiribati, you mentioned, also the Maldives uh, and others. In, in you know, 50, 75 years, they will not have a country. Uh, this is something most of us can imagine. Uh, it's one thing to have the Everglades threatened in Florida. It's quite another thing to have your whole nation disappear. So where are they going to go? And before they go anywhere, there's going to be, a, you know, obviously massive natural disasters there, uh, flooding and so forth. So this is exactly uh, what I was trying to get at uh, in, 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 you know, in, in terms of these public goods. Climate change is a common threat. China actually has a responsibility and and so does Australia, since they're they're in the region and the U.S. as well, to pitch in and make sure that these sorts of extreme scenarios of nations disappearing, islands threatened mortally, uh, are avoided. Adaptation efforts are undertaken. There are ways to save some of these habitats potentially. In other cases, they may have to be relocation, depending on how much we get the emissions under control. So it's it's the adaptation side, but also, as you rightly pointed out, it's about burning coal and other fossils. And there, we are really all guilty in terms of uh, the big countries, because China, of course, is burning huge amounts of coal. Uh, but as you said, Australia is exporting it. There are other countries exporting it to China. China mines it uh, itself in massive quantities. There's also natural gas, which increasingly is looking untenable as a, as a you know, what used to be called a bridge fuel is no longer bridge, given that we have such a limited time horizon. So there's a need for all countries to really tamp this down. It's not happening fast enough. And that's why the, the attention to adaptation must also be uh, uh, given. But in terms of these countries turning to China for security, policing, and cybersecurity, along with economic development. Now, Ned Price, the spokesman at the State Department, is warning that China tends to get a lot of these countries into a debt trap. And he also said that they're really into into extracting, as we mentioned, uh, extracting seafood, extracting logging, etc. But I don't know, uh, are these warnings falling on deaf ears? You would think, for example, the last people you'd want to do cybersecurity would be the Chinese because they've created a cybersecurity police state in China itself where there's the most massive surveillance of citizens in the world. 
And no question about that. China is not a democracy, uh, and the surveillance is well known in terms of the way it operates in, in, in that country. We live here in the U.S., which doesn't have, uh, we do have challenges, but it, it, this is not something we have to face on a daily basis, which is a good thing. Uh, the question, though, is you raise the point of falling on deaf ears. The fact is that we see Chinese economic activity, investments, BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, and so on, as debt traps. But a lot of countries have a mixed view of it. In some cases, there have been situations where the debt has caused the Chinese to take over assets, like in Sri Lanka. But even in Sri Lanka, most of the debt Sri Lanka owns, and by the way, it's going through a major internal political upheaval because of its uh, financial fiscal situation, is actually not owed to China. Uh, more is owed to other players. So the debt problem in the global south is, is fairly serious. China is not uh, necessarily the biggest purveyor of it. And it's a it really mixed bag. A lot of these countries turn to China. If, they, if, they, if it was such a one-sided thing, they wouldn't. Uh, because after all, the U.S. and its allies are still more powerful militarily. There's no reason for them to take that risk. If they're not only taking a risk with the U.S., they're also going to get into a massive debt trap uh, with China. So corruption could explain some of it, but I don't think it explains all of it. I think that China does offer something to them that the U.S., can't, used to, with the Marshall Plan and all of the dynamic economic initiatives the U.S. used to take. And now the U.S., we in the U.S. have run away from trade agreements. We have run away from uh, confidence in going out and playing the field uh, on trade and investment. And China is stepping in. So I think we have to get our house in order in terms of putting our front foot forward and not trying to erect walls when it comes to trade and investment. So do you think uh, then, Sarang, the fact that, for example, in the Solomons, the capital is in, on Guadalcanal, which, of course, is right. epic in the minds of America in terms of World War II, the, the battle that turned the tide in the Pacific. You would think, given that legacy, that the U.S. would be more on the ball in terms of investing and, and helping these countries and building the rule of law and, and democratic institutions that would be less susceptible to Chinese blandishments. That's what one would expect. You're right. And the fact that it's happening so belatedly, I mean, the U.S. didn't have an embassy in the Solomon Islands for a very long time, and it just opened it. Um, and it's just that the U.S. is short-staffed when it comes to State Department, diplomats, diplomacy in general, is not something that the U.S. has invested in. Uh, foreign aid as well has, has become too militarized. There are ways to create uh, foreign aid programs that are not handouts, but do leverage private investment and bring a different side of the U.S. to bear in a positive way, whether it's on infrastructure or whether it's on supply chains, whether it's on climate adaptation, so forth. And I don't think we in the U.S. are... Uh, we still have some ways to go before we get our act together. So I think the response can't be, first of all, the exaggeration. I do think there's an exaggeration in terms of the threat to the U.S. I don't see this sort of a threat to U.S. national security from uh, this agreement necessarily. Now, we have to see what happens. But right now, there's no evidence that there's a base being built and that's directed at our allies uh, or us. And secondly, the U.S. has to be much more proactive. It's an internal work that has to happen before external um, aspects can be, you know, focused on. I mean, both both should be focused on, but I think more of the work is internal than external. Well, Sarang Shadori, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sarang Shadori, who is Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose areas of research include geopolitical risk, grand strategy, and energy and climate security, with a special emphasis on Asia and the Pacific.
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America Well